welcome to another episode of Story Conversations. My name is Simon Arrowsmith and with me as always is... Susan Griffin. Fantastic. Susan, why don't you tell us who we have on today's episode? Well, um, uh, this, this is a real exciting episode for me. Uh, mm. We have with us the terrific Diane Hassan. Um, amongst all her many accomplishments, she's a sing- serial entrepreneur, a female CEO multiple times over. She's the founder of C-Space. Um, she is an author. She's a contributing journalist to the Boston Globe. Um, she is a, a champion of women, women in technology, people in mm. technology. And she's got some really interesting things to tell us about story. She does indeed. Let's hear. Diane, welcome to Story Conversations. Thank you so much for being our guest. We like to start every conversation by asking you to share a little bit of your origin story. So I know you know you're a successful serial entrepreneur, you're a board member of various companies, including Panera Bread. been a columnist for the Boston Globe and you're an author so just tell us a little bit about your history and, and how you got to where you are today. Yeah I, I do have a very mixed um, I, I have a mixed career a real portfolio <laughs> career you know I had a younger brother I have a younger brother who when he was two years old he decided what he wanted to do my parents bought him one of those black plastic doctor kits, and I was the older sister. I opened that thing up, I yanked out a stethoscope, I put it around his neck, and from that moment on, it became clear to my brother that he wanted to be a surgeon. And he ended up being good in science, and he went to medical school, and he has been a surgeon his entire life. And his career was incredibly successful, but also incredibly focused. Hmm. And I hated him for that early (laughs) early on because I never knew what I wanted to do. And I thought that most people were like my brother. Hmm. So as it turns out, uh, what I've learned over the years is that most people are like me. I mean, sometimes Hmm. people fake it. You know, you write on your college application what you want to do. You go into a job interview and you say, here's what I'm passionate about. But you're just not really sure. And I think that if you're like me, uh, the most important thing uh, that you realize is that so much of what happens to you is serendipity. That there Mm. is a person, a moment, a party, a conversation where everything changes. And the benefit of that is, you know, I always used to say to my brother, if you were sitting on an airplane next to somebody who all of a sudden threw an opportunity at you, you would say, no, 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 I don't want to think about that because I am doing my surgery thing. Whereas for me, a lot of my life and my career has been that when the universe sends new things (laughs) to me, I do look to the right and look to the left and sometimes see new opportunity. And um, one of my favorite movies that really demonstrates that, I actually 
Simon, I don't know if you've seen. Oh, it's, it's a, um, it's a. I think it's a British film called Sliding Doors with William uh, yeah, Paltrow. Sliding Doors. Yeah. Okay, so yeah. it's really hard to find this film online, but you know the yes. the movie starts and she's in London and she's running through the streets and she runs down uh, into uh, the underground mm-hmm. and there's her train and she runs up and the doors are closing and she bang 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 on the door and the doors open and she gets in. And then about five to ten minutes later, the whole movie starts all over again, same yeah. thing. There she is, running through the streets, down into the underground, bangs on the door closes, she bangs on the door, and it doesn't open. Yeah. And the rest of the movie shows how just dramatically different her life is because of just yeah. those doors closing. And what I love about that is that it's made me more attentive to the moments that can change everything. Mm. And I've had so many of those moments in my life. And, you know, I think you can look at serendipity as luck. Well, that was just good luck or bad luck that the door is closed. But you can open up your life to, you know, creating situations in which serendipity can happen. And I think when I look at the variety that I've had, it's because over the years... I've learned how to do that. I've learned how to say that sounds interesting or why not try that or why would I ever say no to that opportunity? Right. Being open to serendipity um, Mm -hmm. as opposed to being closed. Yeah. Yeah. And Um, having confidence that sometimes that that brings you to places that are, and people, that are really exciting and just whole new paths. And you, wow, and you've had some pretty exciting paths that you've um, pursued. You know, looking at your background, uh, you were involved with a, a, a corporate training program that was quite successful, and you sold it to Pearson. And then you had that moment um, where you founded what's now called C-Space, but at that point was called Communispace. And you know, essentially, you invented the concept of online affinity communities. Um, I mean, it would be interesting to hear a little bit more about how you came up. Th- what was the serendipity? The, what was the moment at which you <clears throat> realized that brands could benefit from listening to consumers? Um, you know, yeah. what... what what was yeah. the what was the serendipity moment that started Communispace? Yeah. Well, so okay, so there are two questions that you're asking me in terms of what got me convinced that brands could do well by listening to consumers. Um, my first job out of business school was at General Foods, which at the time was a large consumer packaged goods company, and. Um, I was. I had a. a I remember hearing stories about this. Yeah, I had a, a product management job um, at General Foods. I went there for the summer. The head of HR says to me, "Diane, what do you want to work on? We have a zillion brands. We have stovetop stuffing. We have bird's eye frozen peas. We have post cereals. We have Gaines burgers. We have country time lemonade." She gives me the whole layout and says, "What are you interested in?" And of course, as I as you might expect, I wasn't sure. I said, "I'll." Work on anything. Just play me where you really need the help. But I'd really like to work on a brand that I understand. 
And she said, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, like, don't give me decaffeinated coffee because I just don't get it. Like, why <laughs> would anybody drink, you know, why would anybody drink something that tastes bad if it doesn't deliver what I had thought was the primary benefit? And in their infinite wisdom, they put me on brim decaffeinated coffee. And <sighs> that began my journey and, you know, what ultimately became so much of my life's work um, and passion to really try to understand people who are different from me. And mm. I immersed myself in the world of people who drank decaffeinated coffee. And, you know, our, by really understanding those people and conveying it to my team, we had some real breakthroughs uh, in terms of just, you know, what we could do to grow the product line. And, <clears throat> and um, so I had always been passionate about that. But Susan, to answer the second part of your question, when I decided to be an entrepreneur, I didn't think about any of that. You know, I, I had worked for another company for a long time. I, I largely left because I was dying to be a CEO. Like I finally said, this is what I want to do. And I told my boss in the aftermath of uh, one of my performance reviews, I said to him, he had been talking about maybe stepping aside and being chairman. And I said to my boss, this is in the um, training development company. I said, you know, John, um, I'm not trying to kick you out of the company, but just in case you do decide that you want to move over and become chairman, I think I would be a great next CEO. And John looked at me and he said, Diane, someday you are going to be a great CEO, but right now you're a work in progress. And I, I mean, I didn't put my hands on my hips and walk out, but I was heartbroken mm. because I really thought I was ready. And part of why I decided to kind of get off the corporate treadmill and become an entrepreneur was that I wanted to lead. I wanted to be a CEO, and I wanted to be a CEO of a significant enterprise that mattered. So I didn't want to be a CEO of a one, two, five, ten-person company. I wanted to build an enterprise and lead that. And I thought, well, if John doesn't think I can, I'm ready for that, I think I'm ready for it. This is, you know, the best way to do it. And I had a completely, uh, we had a completely different idea in the beginning. You know, it was the, uh, it was the uh, age of America Online, and mm. people all over the world had AOL accounts. But I fell in love with this notion that you could use the internet to connect people. Mm. And I would be on America Online, you know, sitting in a group full of tennis players talking about tennis or playing backgammon with someone from India. I thought that was so amazing. And I had this hypothesis that um, collaboration and, and that this online community stuff would also be relevant to corporations for serious business purposes. And there was a team of us, but we basically started Communispace as a collaborative software company. So that if you were, for instance, like one of our clients was Chase Manhattan Bank, they had 200 human resources people internally, and we were going to build for them the Chase, you know, the Chase Human Resources Network, which would wow. connect all of these people so that they could work together. And they could share best practices, they mm. could dish on vendors, they could talk a little bit about the different ways in which they did compensation or all of those things that human resources people do. When we introduced this to them, they were outrageously excited. Um, we had sold a, a pilot to Chase. 
The clients were so excited I had presented this to them at a conference. They gave us a standing ovation, came back. We launched the Chase HR network, and guess what? No one came. The software was great. The idea Mm. was great. The people who were supposed to participate were great, but no one came. And we had lots of hypotheses about why. We tried all of them. No one in charge, not relevant enough information. We tinkered with the software. We couldn't make it happen. And we had other clients that we had sold this to who loved it and who figuratively gave us a standing ovation. Same thing. Mm. We just were having a hard time actually getting people to come online and actually engage with each other. So we basically had a lucky serendipitous day. I was uh, with one of our salespeople in Kansas City at Hallmark. And Hallmark was going to build one of these online communities. They were going to build it of all of their store managers. And the store managers were going to share best practices about how to do better merchandising, how to improve the profitability of the stores, etc. And the client, who's a guy named Tom Brailsford, looked at me and said, you know, Diane, I love what you guys are doing, but I'm just worried that no one's going to come into the community. And fortunately, I was already in my 40s leading that company, so I just took a deep breath and decided to be honest. And I said to him, Tom, I'm worried no one's going to come in either. Wow. And there was silence. And then he said to me, I think I might have a better idea. Meanwhile, like Mitchell, who's the guy who sold the account, is like stepping on my foot, you know, (laughs) underneath the table because we needed the business, which we definitely did. And he said, well, think about it. You know, we're a card company. He said, I don't know about this internet thing. It's the year 2000. He said, maybe, maybe people are not going to send physical cards anymore. I mean, our innovation agenda is enormous. So what if instead of our store managers, we put our consumers in this community. Mm-hmm. Um, our target consumer is moms, especially moms with little kids. And maybe in that group online, they could share what's going on in their lives, their dreams, their frustrations. They could react to our ideas. He said, I don't know, like a focus group on steroids. Mm-hmm. I said, you know what? I love that idea. And actually, in my former life, I did a little bit of work with companies about how to listen to your customers. I had written a book about it, etc. And I went back to Boston and said, we're going to try this crazy idea that our Hallmark client has. And um, everybody said, you know, they're not going to do the store manager community. We're going to do a consumer community. Everybody was like, okay, we'll try it. But like, where are we going to find the moms? Hmm. You know, it was easy (laughs) to find the store managers. Hallmark's uh, consumer affairs department really helped us. But to make a long story short, in November of 2000, we launched the Hallmark Idea Exchange for Parents, which was an online community of 197 moms and three stay-at-home dads who had agreed to be advisors to Hallmark on a continuous basis in this online community. And the community was vibrant. I mean, from the Uh. minute we launched it, the moms are in there saying, is this really Hallmark? Do you really want to know what I have to say? The client is calling like every half hour saying, did you see what that one said? Did you see what that one said? Did you see? I mean, it was just incredible. I mean, just so gratifying that we were lucky enough that 
we got this client to give us this great idea. And so I basically pulled five people off of their jobs. We called them the customer community SWAT team. And 45 days later, we made a recommendation to our board of directors to kind of pivot into this different space. Um, there's a much longer story to this. It was a terrible time to have a great idea. That was early 2001. Hmm. Um, the economy tanked. Uh, the internet bubble burst. 2001, especially uh, in the U.S., was September 11th. Um, hmm. It was a very difficult time. So we basically, from 2000 through probably the end of 2003, had huge challenges, lots of near-death experiences, but ultimately... This idea really gelled, and uh, we had a lot of courageous clients in the beginning who were willing to just take a leap with us and go on an adventure with us. And um, you know, now that space is an industry in itself. Mm. Yeah. yeah, and dare I say it, they were not only willing to take a leap with you, but I've attended conferences and seen C-Space execs present <laughs> with clients who were happy to basically enthusiastically endorse you. Um, I, I remembered seeing Disney on a podium yes, with uh, one well. of your, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's unheard of. You know, I think that the, the enthusiasm with which your clients um, told the story of how community space mm -hmm. changed the way they well, reached clients was really pretty amazing. Thank you. Well, you know, Here's the thing, and I know I'm preaching to the choir because the two of you are so passionate about storytelling, but what I learned very early on in this journey, especially because we had a new technology. I mean, I would get up in front of a market research conference. I'd talk about what we were doing. People would stand up and go, this is not research. This is not a representative sample. <laughs> Nobody's on the internet. You can't ask respondents more than one. You know, here, we were building relationships with people over mm -hmm. time. I mean, right. they were members of the community for a long time. People thought that break broke rules. But what sold people was when Tom Brailsford of Hallmark or when Paul Caswell of Disney told their stories. So mm -hmm. right. we learned very quickly that we were going to take our clients on the road because what was going to be compelling to people was not us talking about the features and benefits of our product, not yeah. us talking about here's how it works and let me tell you about our company and let me tell you how great our values are and you know all of those things it was us going on the road with clients and the way we made it easy for them to tell stories is i never asked a client to create a presentation because it's too much work oh. so we would sit on bar stools i would make it really easy and i would just interview the client why yeah. did you do this did you worry that it wasn't market research you know, I tried to be authentic with them. I would say, what are circumstances under which you would never use this community? Mm. You know, et cetera. So, and of course, they not only told great stories, but they got to be heroes. And what I loved was at the end of those interviews, somebody from the conference would say, thank you very much, Diane and client. And now we're going to take a break. And the client would be inundated with people wanting to ask them questions afterwards coming up to them. So they had a chance to really be leaders in their mm -hmm. industry. And after a while, people would say to me, you know, I'd walk into a, a conference and people would say, oh no, there she is again, <laughs> Diane with her clients, you know, or whatever. But you could always find someone 
who... How do you spell jealousy? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So it was literally, it was literally our marketing strategy to, to take courageous clients who had done some really interesting things and to have them educate their colleagues about what their journey had looked like. That's so powerful. That whole um, notion of show people what happened, don't tell them what happened and, and get someone else to somebody else's voice into the conversation because there's that social proof thing and the belief in the in the client so was this the, the sort of aha moment from consumers stories that got your clients to realize the power of communities both as a sort of strategy but also as a communications um, strategy if you like mm-hmm. was it was it the was it the consumers mm-hmm. that helped clients did that then turn into internal communities or was it st- just just in external it was just external, but the stories that we learned from ongoing conversations with these consumers were poignant, hmm. um, inspiring, depressing, <laughs> uh, transformational. And, you know, as a researcher, people always say, is this quant or is this qual? Mm. Right? Are, are you talking to are you talking to thirty thousand people asking them, do you like red, blue, or green? Or are you talking to three hundred people? And what I always found was that as much as I you wanted to have quantitative information to validate what people were saying, at the most senior executive at the most senior levels of corporations. The executives loved the stories. I mean, yeah. they'd walk out of the room saying, wow, it's great that 80% of the people said red, but, but that story will really stick with me. And so we learned how to tell those stories up front. We learned how to create slides and materials for executives that brought those stories to life. We incorporated video into almost everything that we did so that Mm. we could literally show people telling a story, taking us on a tour of their local Walmart. I mean, doing whatever needed to be done because they're they're just so memorable. I mean, I'm happy to give you examples of that, but, you know, that was the whole point that if we could get people to trust us, we'd hear stories that we had never heard before. Right. Uh, and so how is then, the, oh, go on, No, go ahead, Simon. No, I was just saying, how has is, how is the value proposition, therefore, of, of C-Space evolved? What's, what's the C-Space story now? Mm-hmm. Well, the C-Space story now is, um, I left in 2014. I think the company has evolved into more of a customer agency, the way they okay. talk about it, that everything about what C-Space does is to help kind of wire the voice of the customer and the perspective of the customer into how someone does business. You know, I think when I was there, our value proposition in the beginning was about faster and cheaper. (laughs) That if you had people um, committed to being advisors and they were available to you whenever you wanted, if I wanted to understand whether people like red, blue, or green, and by the way, that's a stupid question. You would never <laughs> spend a whole bunch of time on that. But just for purposes of illustration, yeah. if I wanted to understand that, 
These people were so into the community that if I wanted to know red, blue, or green, I could ask that question while I was in the meeting, while, when they were asking the question, and literally 20 minutes later, I could say, look, I only have preliminary information from 100 consumers, but I've already got the responses. That was outrageously breakthrough in those days that right. you could get such instant feedback. Um, and agencies are still trying to do that, and they can't yeah. do it as well as you did it, Yeah, you know, 10 uh, years ago. Yeah. I think ultimately the challenge is always to tell the client something that they hadn't thought about before. Hmm. And if you can do that quickly, you know, without enormous amounts of effort and expense, um, you have a great value proposition. So we were always looking for the insight, the breakthrough. And the community was just the vehicle for doing that because the, the, the breakthrough for us was that what we learned was that by having a continuous relationship with people, by building trust with them over time, by having a group of people that started talking to each other hmm. and working really hard to make sure you understood what they were trying to say, that we would hear things that we had never heard before. Um, It's so different from putting somebody behind glass for an hour and, you know, hoping that they'll say something. You know, the more you get to know them, the better your own questions are and the more they're willing to really open up. That's an interesting segue to what you've been doing recently. You you sold space to Omnicom, um, mm-hmm. and then subsequently, you've you've been a journalist for the Boston Globe. You've particularly around politics, but you were involved in an initiative that that resulted in a book that you wrote called "Our Common Ground." Um, and I, I'm fascinated with the notion that you interviewed you 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 didn't interview you created that continuous relationship built trust with mm-hmm. 500 voters on many different sides of political questions and it resulted in something if i can interpret it you you say we have far more co- in common Mm-hmm. Then we might believe, and yet we are utterly failing to understand each other. If I got it, if I've got that right, but mm-hmm. I've, I'm fascinated with the idea that the, the the common thread for me, if you will, is this notion of developing a relationship and trust, and then listening to what people had to say. Is mm-hmm. is is that kind of a, a, a decent interpretation of how you got to our common ground? Yeah. You know, um, I left C-Space. I had been there for 14 years. I thought it was time to do something new. And I had a great leadership team. I picked one of my direct reports and I made him the CEO. And I decided I wanted to do something else. And I ran for a while. I was um, CEO of a more mission-driven company called Startup Institute. We built boot camps for people that wanted to get the technical skills they needed to be able to work in startup land. And it was really fun and gratifying I had told the board I would stay for about two years. And while I was in that job, one day in the spring of 2016, I get a call from a friend of mine back in the market research industry. And he was very high up in the Clinton campaign. 
And um, he said, you know, I'm just wondering if I can pick your brain for a little. You know, I'm, I said, I, look, I said, I'm happy to help, but I know nothing about political research. I've never done anything with voters. He said, no, 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 no. He said, we're just, you know, we're looking for better stories. Uh, we know a lot about what's going on in America, but we don't know a lot about why people vote the mm. way they do, why people are feeling the way they do. Mm. Do you have ideas? And of course, I went on and on and on. And if you tried this, if you tried this, if you tried this. And it, that conversation just made me realize how much I missed being in that field. And he said to me, um, would you ever think about working on a project for us? We're trying to understand undecided voters in swing states. And maybe you could help us get some breakthroughs. And I, that it was another serendipitous moment. I right. literally, from that conversation, made a decision to take 20 years of running organizations and having people and having numbers to saying yes to that and end up sitting in my condo in my home office by myself uh, calling people who couldn't make a decision between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton. And it was absolutely fascinating from the beginning. Um, so what I did and the way I decided to try to understand these people was to recruit a bunch of people and build an ongoing relationship with them, just as I did with Communist Space. And what I quickly learned was that in the political field, they do two things. They do focus groups and they do surveys. But there's not a lot of continuous relationship with what researchers call the respondent, which is really a shame because the biggest problem in political research is that people don't tell the truth. Mm. And so if the goal is to hear things that are really, really true for people and to get them to tell you those stories, building some kind of an online panel or community was the way to do that. And I was fascinated at the idea of being able to take what I had learned about getting insights for brands and applying that to an arena that I thought was much more difficult because it was full of emotion and full of a lot of anger, and full of people who didn't necessarily trust some stranger asking them questions. So I did that for a while for the Clinton campaign. And after the election was over, I was about to take another CEO job. I was kind of waiting for um, the next thing to show up. And I decided while I had some time to just write an op-ed for the Boston Globe saying, here's what I've been doing and here's what I've learned, and here's what I think it means for our country. And the article was called Understanding the Undecided Voters. And that was published in November of 2016. And the article went viral. Um, Jake Tapper, who is a big CNN um, mm -hmm. uh, journalist, picked it up and started talking about it. And it was on TV. I mean, to make a long story short, I said, oh my gosh, I'm making more of a difference after the election than before. And so from that experience, I decided not to take another CEO job and instead to set up my life so that I could dedicate at least a third of my time to doing this voter research. So I added several more corporate boards um, and started spending my time doing that. And I also do a lot of angel investing and I recruited a brand new group of voters, this time not just undecided, all points along the political spectrum, all ages, every state, every ethnicity. 
I interviewed each one of them for a half hour. And the primary reason for that is I wanted them to know that there was a real curious person behind all these questions who wasn't going to judge them. And I wanted to also, you know, make sure that they were who they said they were. I didn't have any time frame on it, but I just started every Tuesday doing what we used to do at Communispace every Tuesday, which is to say, hi, everybody, here's what I'm interested in understanding this week. And we made it um, lots of fun. It wasn't just surveys. Sometimes it would be fill in the blanks or a true false test, or I'd ask them to take a look at a video and react to that or I'd ask them to take out their video camera or do a journal or whatever. And that project, it was just irresistible. I had so many questions and every time something happened in the news, I had this group at the ready willing Mm -hmm. to kind of pour their hearts out to me. I ended up writing 55 op-eds for the Boston Globe, which is how I got onto the editorial board uh, for a while. And um, ultimately, especially during COVID, when I had time at home, uh, I decided to pull it all into Our Common Ground, uh, which is the book that came out late last year. Fantastic. And, and in that book, you, you talk a lot about specifically around listening and the importance mm-hmm. of candor. Mm-hmm. And you've got a, a chapter, I understand it, devoted to the power of listening and listening hard. So I, I, I just, and, and listening without lecturing, I think that's really important. I love this this thing, this sort of connection about when people want to be heard, you have to engage with them and be present. It can't just be this sort of cursory sort of, um, it, yeah, it can't it can't be flippant. Can you tell us a little bit about that, the, the magic of conversations as you describe them and why they're so important and what part listening obviously plays in that? Yeah. Well, I've written a lot about, you know, I, I, stri- I tried to write a storybook when I wrote Our Common Ground, so there are lots of stories, but I did at the end say, okay, so now here's what you need to do and how to listen. And if I had to summarize that last chapter, the main piece of advice I gave people is that when someone expresses an opinion about something going on in the world, And particularly, if you hate their opinion, you have two options at that point. Option one is to say, actually, Simon, that's not true. I mean, it's it's not true that the November 2020 election was fraudulent. Here's the statistics. Here are all the judges who dismissed cases. Here are some videos. Here are some articles, etc. You don't do that. Um, mm. and, and when people do that, they find miraculously that the other person doesn't really value their statistics. They don't change their mind at yeah. all. <laughs> so when someone says that, you need to take a deep breath and say, that's really interesting. Tell me more. Yeah. Tell Classic. me more. And those Classic. three words uh, have been transformational for me. And most of the time, when you say, tell me more about that. Like, how did you come to that? Um, You know, where did you learn that? What else? What else? That's so interesting. What happens uh, is, number one, you learn something that you didn't know before Hmm. that shifts your opinion. And the other thing that happens is that the person just relaxes Hmm. because 
they're talking to somebody who really wants to just understand what's going on. So that's what I tried to do with people. I mean, among my 500 voters, you know, so often one of them would say something to me, you know, online or they'd write me an email or whatever. And I'd think, oh my gosh, I cannot believe I have to listen to this person, you know. (laughs) And, um, you know, by saying, you know, I very often would say, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding. Like, you know me well enough at this point that you know my opinion is different, might be different on this one, but I am (laughs) fascinated as to how you got to this point. I mean, how in the world did you decide it was a good idea to have a collection of 300 guns? Hmm. Tell me more. Tell me more. Right? (laughs) Tell me more. You know, what is that? And um, in the process of doing that, you know, people relax and they tell you, they tell you the stories. They tell you. Uh, This one um, voter I had who did have 300 guns, who was a card-carrying member of the NRA, the National Rifle Association. I mean, he told me this incredible story about how his grandfather got him his first gun, which was a twenty-two caliber rifle, when he was seven years old. And he went through, you know, he went through the whole story, you know, the the Zen quality he felt from shooting a gun. Like he Mm -hmm. talked about, you know, the perfect shot in, in a way that I might talk about hitting a really great drive off the golf tee. (laughs) And it helped me to not think of this as some crazy paranoid person who watched too many Westerns on television, but rather someone who had built up a passion, you know, over a series of years. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating because I often will talk about the fact that we change minds one story at a time. And so Mm -hmm. the story we share with someone about ourselves and our personal experiences has the capacity to shift someone's mind. I think personally, my personal experience, um, you know, as, as a gay man sharing that fact, sharing my personal experience with one other person and entering, letting them enter into my world a little bit does shift, particularly if they are big, they have a bigoted viewpoint about that will share and I've had that experience several times and it's quite wonderful to see that that moment I, I think it's really fascinating how mm-hmm. those small conversations and small specific stories can have massive changes yeah and it's all you know it's all the standard stuff it's walking in people's shoes mm. um, you know which is it's just so important. And does it leave you hopeful I, that we can, as a, as a society, reach some sort of common ground? Um, well, I'm very hopeful. And the main reason is there is common ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'll, I'll go back to that voter uh, whose name is Jim, uh, who I told you about, whose um, grandfather got him his first gun at age seven. So um, in 2017, there was a horrible mass shooting at a music festival in Las Vegas. Mm -hmm. Uh, 60 people were killed. And I literally, instead of being online, I called Jim to ask him what he thought. And of course, the first thing he said to me was that he wanted to remind me that 99% of gun owners are not crazies and that this guy is a crazy, etc. And then he surprised me. 
He said that we need reform. We need to get rid of bump stocks. We need to get rid of the gun show loophole. We need to make sure that people on the terrorist watch list don't get the right to own a gun. We need to have a mandatory waiting for gun purchases. I literally thought I was going to faint. Wow. <laughs> and in fact, 80% of my voters also supported those changes. And we can go from issue to issue, gun control, immigration, uh, infrastructure, healthcare, climate change. There is enormous common ground, but we are talking past each other. Mm. We are not saying, tell me more. And part of that is because the disagreement is on the fringes. The disagreement is on the very far left and the very far right, but those are the people who are getting the most airtime. So our perceptions of each other and what we think are completely wrong. You know, you get the craziest candidate, the, uh, the craziest person from Congress, and they say something outrageous. And then you think, oh my gosh, well, like all people in that party are like yeah. that. All people are crazy. So our perceptions of each other are off and are, there's so much common ground there. And you know that, you know, you've seen the TV shows where we lock 10 people who all have different views in a room yeah. and, you know, two hours later they come out hugging each other. I mean, we know that's possible but you know we need to take the time to do it so yes i'm very hopeful but you know i have my days it's hard yeah and our leaders aren't great at doing it yeah i I guess the other thing about that is the stories that are at those fringes or the stories we hear are so compelling and so powerful it's difficult to ignore them and it's difficult to fight against them as it were but i love Mm -hmm. the fact that actually you're saying don't fight against them lean into them and inquire about them and ask Tell me more about that story, because I think actually that another thing that happens when you ask that question, in my experience, is sometimes the, the other individual's story unravels a little bit and they see the truth when they are sharing more of themselves sometimes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. Um, you know, I probably, I have hundreds of stories in, uh, in our common ground and sometimes I'll say to people, like, is there one that stands out for you? And of course, if I ask that question now, uh, people will tell me that it's the story about I have a chapter on abortion. Mm-hmm. And if I had to pick an area where it's very hard to find common ground, it's abortion. I mean, there are lots of people, both Democrats and Republicans in the U.S., who, for whom that is a single issue, as in if you have a candidate that you agree with on everything else, but they're on the wrong side of the way you feel about abortion, you won't vote for them. Mm. And um, I had a voter uh, who was uh, from Alabama, and uh, he was uh, actively pro-life. Like He would stand with signs outside of baseball parks and say... You know, we need to uh, overturn Roe v. Wade, et cetera, et cetera. And we spent a lot of time with me trying to understand where that came from and why he felt that way, et cetera. I spoke with him probably at this point about three years ago. And um, he had sent me an email and said, can we talk? And I called him and he said, I just want you, I want to tell you something. And that is that my 15-year-old daughter found out that she was pregnant And this weekend, I brought my entire family together, and we prayed, and we talked about everything, and we decided that it was okay for my daughter to have an abortion. 
I was speechless. I did not say, tell me more. I literally was unable to talk. And, um, you know, when I finally asked him to tell me more, he told me that it was an excruciating, that unlike in the pro-choice movement, the decision to have an abortion was excruciating for them, that it took so much thinking, so much agonizing, so much crying, praying emotion, and that's how they got to there. But on the other side, people don't do that. His perception was Mm -hmm. that people who are pro-choice are very cavalier about abortion. Oh, I'm pregnant. I'll go across the street and have an abortion and it won't bother me at all. So just that, even Mm. on an issue where there's not a lot of common ground, this notion that there's a perception that anyone would be cavalier about this, except for on the fringes. There are people Mm. on the fringes who are cavalier about it. So I think all of those, but, you know, any of those sorts of stories are memorable. And it's a lot more compelling than saying, you know, 80% of Americans you know, think this way or the like. Right. Well, I have to um, interject here. You you know, you have really a lot of testimonials in the book, about the book, but one that struck me, what came from um, Rosabeth Moss Cantor, who's a Harvard Business School professor, and she said... Diane Hassan assembles a remarkable wealth of evidence about why facts alone won't heal American divides. But listening to other people's perceptions of what's behind the facts just might bring us together with mutual respect. Her fascinating anecdotes and powerful analysis make for a compelling must-read, which, you know, um, everybody has to read your book. Um, Thank you. And, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's an ongoing important thing for people to understand about if we're ever going to get past this deep polarization that we have. Um, well, look, Diane, thank you so much. Um, we, we like to end story conversations. Um, by asking our guests if you have a famous or a favorite rather favorite story now we know that you are a diehard advocate of all things Boston whether it's your (laughs) alma maters Tufts and Harvard um, your 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 beloved Red Sox um, (laughs) you know you are a devoted mom and a supporter of women um, and little people who are in your lives. So is your favorite story a joke, a bedtime story, a fable? <laughs> What's your favorite story? Yeah. Oh, my. You know what? I knew you were going to ask me this question, and I totally forgot to think about what the answer should be. So, <laughs> I mean, I do have a lot of favorite stories from from each of those dimensions. You know, my favorite story to read to my kids was this um, book that people might not have heard of called The Philharmonic Gets Dressed, which is about, you know, an orchestra and how they get prepared to actually perform in front of people. That if you have mm-hmm. young children, especially like between the ages of maybe five and ten, it's just a really wonderful story. You know, I guess reflecting on our conversation, 
my favorite story, I'm going to try to say this not in an egotistical way, but I guess my favorite story and what everyone's favorite story should be is their own story. Mm. You know, when I interview people, um, if it's if it's somebody that I really need to um, understand deeply, I'll say, Susan, what's your story? Simon, tell me your story. And the thing that's fun about loving your own story is that it changes. It doesn't have an ending. Yeah. It changes all the time. And I think if you see your personal journey as trying to create a really interesting story, you know, it makes a huge difference. I mean, I guess 10 years ago, uh, if you had said to me, what's your story? I would have said my story is of someone who grew up in a steel town on the wrong side of the tracks and how that taught me that I could be really happy in fairly dire circumstances. And so it, you know, changed my risk profile and I became an entrepreneur because what's the worst thing that happens? Worst thing that happens is my company fails and I end up back in Norristown, Pennsylvania, where I didn't have a lot, but where I had a very happy childhood. I mean, that was my story. It was the story of entrepreneurship. And yet now, as I look, you know, life is long and we have so many chapters. So now, as much as I value the entrepreneurship part of my story, I think my story now is about my passion for just understanding people who are different from me. You know, whether it's in business or whether it's in the world or whether it's in how I, you know, really interact with the community or whatever. And I'm hoping that five years from now, I'll think my story is something different. So it's just the process of, you know, building those chapters. And I don't spend a lot of time thinking about my story. It's just fun to kind of look at it and then look back and reflect, you know, once a year on December 31st and saying, you know, what happened this year? How did my trajectory change? What could I do to be a better person, a better mentor, a better mom? How do I, where do I want to take that story? And, you know, do I feel like, do I feel like it's interesting? So, um, you know, on my good days and where I feel like I'm making progress, you know, my favorite story is the one I'm trying hard to create for myself. I love that answer. That's great. Thank yeah. you. Um, well, thank you very again, much. Yeah. Thank you so much for being our guest. And we look forward to hearing the serendipitous <laughs> effect of your next <laughs> yeah. story. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Where do we, wait, come on, let's, let's, what, what, can, so we, what can we take away? She is, you know, absolutely. And, and so accessible, and that's, yeah, yeah. That, that's one of the, just one of the things about her that's so amazing. Um, mm. What, what are, what are our takeaways? I, I guess what was interesting was her candor around serendipity. Um, you know, and she's very self-effacing about describing it almost as though she was ambling through life. But I, I, I think it's something much more disciplined than that. I mean, mm. she has rigorously kept herself open 
to serendipity to this it's not capricious mm. she's built on core competencies but she has been relentlessly open primarily to the changes in client circumstances yeah. that enabled her to evolve her business right. her businesses evolve mm. <laughs> and you know you've used this word before when companies slavishly stick to either the way they describe themselves or what the services they deliver, they miss mm. the opportunity for their story to evolve, their products yeah, to evolve. So. so her, her, her word, you know, being open to serendipity is essentially a proxy for being flexible yeah. So that as the world changes, as business needs of customers change, you can recognize the opportunity to slide your story in with a more evolved value proposition. Yeah, I think that's I think that's so true. I mean, it's 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 not uncommon, isn't it, to hear stories about creatives who came up with a, an invention an innovation or a creative idea through this serendipitous meeting you know and there's there are organizations like pixar and google which actually build their buildings around those chance encounters to create right. magic and um but it is that that awareness of of where when where is that going to come from and you have to have you have to look up and look out don't you really to really see it right and and not all companies are going to be able to embrace the ambiguity of serendipity. Mm. <laughs> but everybody who claims to be agile yeah. had better be flexible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, I think it was a, a point that I think is really useful for our listeners is around um, advocates and advocacy from your clients, but also doing that with your clients. So, you know, I know that we all look for testimonials and endorsements from our clients, and that can be quite challenging. I think, you know, Diane um, celebrated the contribution of her clients in yes. the, work she, the work she does. And, you know, her, her success has been in, in getting them to sort of co-present with her right. on, on how effective the work is. So there's something, it's not just about can you get somebody else to, sh uh, to tell your story for you, but can you get them to tell it with you? That's, yes. really ex that's really exciting. And, and she's so right about it. I mean, she, she recognized the power of the client co-presenter. Mm. And there were, you know, I saw it happen in real time. She would show up at a conference mm. with a client, no slides, and she would just talk to the client yeah. about their role in the company, their their role in um, using the story of how they contributed to make a difference, you know, sharing her genuine enthusiasm for, you know, tell me more about that. Yeah, yeah. And it was almost never about C-Space, but it was about C-Space. And yeah, people were jealous because it was like, damn, why can't we get clients to do that for us? Well, from being on the inside, being in the kitchen when mm. these testimonial <laughs> sausages are being made, it's typically, can you present with us? Can you talk about how you're using our product as opposed to, 
we have this opportunity and maybe we can showcase the wonderful things you've done for your company to completely different approach. Yeah. And why wouldn't somebody who's, you know, toiling in the, in the, the fields of marketing want to be able to highlight something that they've done for their company? Well, it's, it's so, um, it reminds me so much of, um, the work that I know we've, we've talked a lot about around how people, um, pitch or present their work to one another and it instead of being very salesy and and talking you know broadcasting it that conversation that shared story is actually much much more effective we lean in we want to hear that that shared story and that conversation and that banter between two people that becomes more interesting much more interesting than being told a story or told right generally it's not a story it's just a series of facts isn't it and the storyteller, in the case of the clients that she got to co-present with her over the years, or with her teams, because I've seen her teams present with clients, the storyteller, yes, was an employee of a particular company, but she mm-hmm. always was reinforcing it, that it was Paul Caswell or Tom, Tom Brailsford or, you know... Na- naming the person yeah. and it was almost secondary that they were of these big companies yeah absolutely people by people, people they, you know, by and people. but yeah absolutely and the details in a story are really what's um selling it so you know if you can get others to tell your story great but i think it's more powerful to get others to share in a story with you on a platform yes um the third takeaway Apologies for perhaps overcomplicating it, but, you know, Diane is clearly enthusiastic. She's a cheerleader, and if you've never seen that in in action, just wait until you see a post that she writes when the Red Sox are playing. <laughs> but, but in all seriousness, there's an enthusiasm. There's this you know, this authenticity of curiosity, you know, tell me more. But it is backed up with this incredible hard work. I mean, and specifically when she talks about her work assembling the stories that were published in the Boston Globe around the U.S. elections and undecided voters and then all voters or the work that ultimately became Our Common Ground, her book Mm. about these highly divergent views in American citizens that influenced elections. She didn't just come up with this hypothesis and, you know, pontificate about it. She literally did interviews, as she said, Every Tuesday, she listened. She clearly has a point of view, but she she was listening hard, listening mm. non-judgmentally, listening and, and revealing the, the insights. And what she learned is the authentic truth that comes from hard work. Yeah. And... Um, you know, we recorded 
this episode with with Diane before some of the recent right focus on Roe v. Wade in the U.S. and and how it may be overturned. We recorded it before some of the recent spate of mass shootings that have just highlighted the the challenge of gun violence in in mm. the U.S. And she still is, you know, she's she she articulates this hopefulness, right? But it comes from hard work, authentic hard work and I think that you know I don't I don't know what I'm rambling a bit but I I don't know what brands are going to do around in the U.S. around some of the the things that are in the news but we've talked about it before we have and and it's like you know it's it's well it's it's June you know wrap yourself in the pride flag and that'll that'll do it won't it and it's like well is that authentic what what are you really doing for well, for my community, for the community, for example, right. it's it's related to this. If if that if those stories sustainability is the yeah, same yeah. thing, absolutely. You know, if, uh, the 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 planet is warming. If you try to wrap yourself in the sustainability blanket, yeah. but you haven't done the hard work, right? It it's going to come across as authentic, inauthentic, and I think we didn't ask. Diane this question but I I can imagine her saying just don't do it well do the hard work do the hard work that creates the story and then you have the the right to tell it it's interesting in a lot of workshops people say well can does it always have to be a true story I mean no it doesn't have to be a true story as in it can be fiction but if it isn't based in authenticity if it doesn't come from a place that you genuinely um, can own and it, it comes from you then it's not the right story to tell and if you're telling a story that doesn't belong to you which we've talked about before or a story that really isn't true to who you are you'll be found out so why do it it's right you you know better off to really really dig down and understand precisely what your story is what your brand's story is and articulate it with the same enthusiasm and openness that that diane has with hers great okay well thanks as always for listening to story conversations um please keep checking back there's more to come um story conversations is produced by uh, our two respective companies the griffin and skeggs collaborative and iambic creative Um, we deal with marketing brand and content specifically visual branding Uh, marketing strategy the written word sonic branding and helping you to communicate through things like pitching and presenting so if you're interested in that world please do um, check out our website um, details in the show notes and also get in touch we'd love to talk to you we certainly would bye for now bye bye